Hi guys. This is a special series that will span several episodes about one of North America's most notoriously haunted locations, the Blue Ghost Tunnel. If you search online, you will find an enormous amount of information about the tunnel and various YouTube videos documenting ghost hunts. This series will provide accurate information, historic research, and personal accounts dating back to the 1950s. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 2, Episode 11, The Making of a Legend, The Blue Ghost Tunnel. In 1999, an old rail tunnel was transformed from a forgotten engineering feat into a supernatural legend. The Grand Trunk Railway Tunnel, located in Thorold, Ontario, Canada, was for the most part undisturbed and undiscovered until a young paranormal investigator and his friends publicized their encounters at the tunnel and distributed directions to its location. In just four months, the tunnel transforms from a forgotten historical landmark into a paranormal hotspot, rivaling the most famous in the world. Internet discussion forums exploded with talk of the tunnel, and paranormal groups and enthusiasts flocked to investigate. Exposed on television a few years later, the tunnel was well on its way to becoming an urban legend. And that is what fascinated me. I have always wondered where urban legends actually come from. How do they begin? How do they manifest? And what truth is hidden within their simple tales? The Blue Ghost Tunnel, as it has become known, developed and transformed online and within paranormal communities to what it is today. The legend is continuously molded and the truth becomes increasingly gray. This podcast episode provides a timeline of events, people's encounters, and historical facts to showcase how a legend is born, how it flourishes, and how we can learn from this modern experiment. In 1999, a group of paranormal enthusiasts began visiting known haunted locations across the Niagara region of Ontario. Headquartered in Welland, Ontario, the group often visited sites in Niagara Falls, Font Hill, and Port Colborne. After visiting the likes of the Screaming Tunnel and the old Font Hill Cemetery, they were determined to find additional locations to explore and investigate while simultaneously gaining interest in dousing, Ouija boards, and casting spells. Russ, a teenager and member of the group, became active on paranormal discussion boards and developed his own website sharing haunted locations, stories, and experiences. Questioning those on paranormal forums about other haunted locations, he found information about another tunnel named the Screaming Tunnel in an article written by Nick Blay, who visited the tunnel on a regular basis with friends years previous to Russ's discovery. This was not the same Screaming Tunnel near Warner Road in Niagara Falls, Ontario, that Russ had already visited. This was a new tunnel, untouched by paranormal enthusiasts. Nick believed that the tunnel might be haunted, but he did not believe all of the tales about it. He provided the following history of the tunnel and nearby cemetery, which fascinated Russ, who planned to visit the tunnel for himself. Nick Blay says, 
At the time, my friends and I were going to what is known as the Blue Ghost Tunnel. We were calling it the Screaming Tunnel, although we were aware of the actual tunnel in Niagara Lake of the same name. We felt the Blue Ghost Tunnel was more ominous and more deserving of the name. So that's just how we referred to it throughout our tenure there. We used to go there and have bonfires, a few drinks, and just gather as a group. It was our spot that very few people knew about or felt the desire to trek out to. So the place was like our own personal escape. A few times we had explored the tunnel during the day, but mostly came at night when we had groups of people. Many times we would be able to get about halfway in, but due to the joist beams collapsing midway through, we never got all the way through during the night. There were definitely some ominous overtones to the tunnel itself. We always just sat outside of the mouth of the tunnel, and throughout the years we had compiled stories of what we believed caused the tunnel to be haunted. Once or twice, we would catch something out of the corner of our eye moving through the tunnel. The smoke from the fire would filter into the tunnel, and that very well could have been it. But a big part of me knows that it probably wasn't just the smoke. We also sat for a lot of time at the old pump house and frequently walked to the cemetery up the road until the bridge next to the pump house had collapsed. When the canal began to expand and the tunnel was created, the cemetery was transplanted to the current Lakeview Cemetery. On one such visit to the Blue Ghost Tunnel, we trekked to the cemetery where it was completely dark. Upon turning to leave candles, they began to light up. Now being that it was late and pitch black, we didn't see anyone else in the cemetery, but we decided not to stick around to find out what was going on. Back to the transplantation of the bodies from the tunnel though, as the story went, all the bodies had been relocated except for the bodies of some children, where it was that the graves were unmarked and the children were purposely not relocated. I can't really be sure, that, but this is one of the stories that we had come to accept. After digging around on the internet and local records, we found that indeed the tunnel had been used to transport something from one side of the canal to the other, but it was actually done by train. Apparently, a one-rail track was laid through the tunnel, and the train would pass through delivering material. Two different stories emerged from this, one being that a train coming through was going too fast, and upon hitting the curve outside of the tunnel, fell off the track and crashed and killed the driver. Another version has it that two trains collided on this single track going through the tunnel, and that the occupants of both trains now haunt the tunnel and surrounding areas. It's hard to determine what is validity and what has been thrown in and mixed up with the truth with regards to the accounts of how and why this place is haunted. I personally think that they were more than just a few incidents involved, people losing their lives in and around the tunnel. At the time of our visits to the now-coined Blue Ghost Tunnel, we were just looking for a place to call our own and enjoy our summer nights with friends. We also were on somewhat of a ghost hunting kick, which most likely led to my original post on the Haunted Niagara websites. But all in all, from the time we were 18 to 20-ish, we were just looking for a place to have fun. We definitely weren't the only ones, as there were always smash bottles and remnants of old fires prior to our arrival, but we always tried to keep the place clean because, again, it was our spot. As I said earlier, we caught glimpses of something in the tunnel from time to time. 
See, we always felt like something was around us. Occasionally, we would also hear sounds we couldn't explain emanating from the tunnel. And we would always try to find where in the tunnel they were coming from, but to no avail. The sounds would generally cease once we got close to about halfway in. I think the last time that I visited the tunnel was in early 2007. By that time, the landscape of the tunnel had changed drastically. The ominous feel of the open mouth tunnel of the defunct Grand Trunk Railway System seemed muted. The entranceway was closed up with cinder block bricks and mortar and a gated entrance, reminiscent of an old jail cell door. It was clear that the seaway no longer wanted people on the private property. I assumed that the next group of people that took over after we left didn't keep it so clean and the graffiti was definitely a strong indication of that. It was definitely sad to see the change at the tunnel. I have always felt that perhaps if Russ and his crew hadn't tried to make it such a spectacle that it wouldn't have gained as much notoriety and the seaway wouldn't have been forced to close it up and add security requirements around the area. Although it is on private land, it is also part of Niagara heritage like the DeCue House, the Queenston Park, Beaver Dams Park, and so on. It should have been restored so people could use the trail to walk through and experience a part of history. Now, it is being coined the Blue Ghost Tunnel, a place that most people will never see, never has a chance to walk through, even if only halfway, because the owner of the land is tired of people disrespecting the land and the property. Perhaps, if I never mention our place, the current state of the tunnel would be different, but then again, there would have always been someone to occupy their nights in front of the tunnel, and not all of them would have respected the place as much as my friends and I did. It was probably inevitable that the Seaway took action to try and prevent people from being there, but who can really say for sure? When I was last there, it was evident that people didn't take kindly to the Seaway locking up the tunnel, as the door was not locked and the cinder block or two was missing. All I can say with absolute certainty was that I loved each and every night I spent there with my friends. We respected the tunnel and the area because we considered it our own. I will always remember the fun we had and the explorations we did. It's definitely a time in my life that I miss. Before Russ visited the tunnel, he decided to gather as much information about the tunnel and the surrounding area as possible, and began questioning the Toronto Ghost and Hauntings Research Society, the TJHRS, about the Screaming Tunnel. In his correspondence with Matthew James Didier, co-founder and operator of TJHRS, Russ indicated that he didn't find the tunnel that haunted. Initially, Russ did not claim to have any ghostly encounters at the BGT, the Blue Ghost Tunnel, aside from numerous photos he took that contained, quote, orbs. Even way back in those days, we doubted that orbs or myths were much more than something natural rather than supernatural in true origin. Not to mention it was snowing in several of Russ's photos, so we felt no need for further investigation by ourselves based on his evidence, says Matthew. However, Russ maintained that his first visit to the tunnel wasn't until 2002, and his claims of paranormal activity at the tunnel were reported to others and within his online text as extremely high, even on the first visit. Russ first visited the tunnel in April of 2002 and decided to document his entire experiences so that he began 
an online journal. The website, which stored the original journal, was deleted by Russ shortly after he disappeared from the paranormal community. Here is Russ's first journal entry. So, last night, Saturday, our group decided that we would investigate this other screaming tunnel that we read about. There were four of us, and it was raining and generally miserable out. Nevertheless, we got our gear together. We found the road and the dirt mound and parked the car and walked for about a mile or a mile and a half. We checked out a few of the paths along the road that led to a river with a dam. We began to get audible manifestations once we were about halfway to the original graveyard area. At one point, we were standing right on top of the tunnel without realizing it, and our EMF detector went off. We investigated a pathway that leads you right atop the tunnel entrance. It was a very steep but short path off the main road, directly on top of the actual tunnel. It was very creepy. We continued down the road until it bent right and found the stony path that leads down the hill to the tunnel. When the tunnel came into the site, I took out my divining rods and went slowly forward with the rest of the group. Our friend JJ was ahead with a flashlight and the EMF. We got about 20 feet away from the entrance of the tunnel and stopped to prepare to enter. At this point, a couple of members in our group described that they felt dizzy and overheated. I was a little dizzy, but felt like I was plugged into a 12-volt power source. You know how when you are near a haunted location, you get that feeling? Anyway... The feeling intensified and intensified as we crept slowly toward the entrance of the tunnel. At this point, I wanted to test the divining rods I was carrying with me. I have a really good set that I got from the divining mind. Anyway, so I took them out of my pack that I carry all my equipment in. And I'm standing there with my friends fairly close and the rods outpointed toward the tunnel entrance. JJ approaches the tunnel entrance and is approximately 10 feet from the entranceway and he begins to flash his flashlight inside. He also snapped a few pictures. About 20 seconds after he flashed the camera and the tunnel got dark again, he was getting his flashlight ready to go inside. I caught a glimpse or a visual manifestation. It was ice blue and fog-like. It formed the face of a wolf or a dog-like animal. Before I had a chance to ask if anyone could see it, it was gone, and I was wondering if I saw it at all. At this point, my feet are glued, and that feeling of being plugged into the electrical socket increased about a thousand times. The divining rod started acting very peculiar. There was a force on them that pushed the one in a complete 360-degree counterclockwise direction while the other rod went completely horizontal at 90 degrees. They then came around and crossed and uncrossed, crossed and uncrossed. Things got a bit surreal at this point. I shouted to the group to look at my rods. There was definitely a charge that was building up in the area and I had feeling that something was going to happen. Then bang, something like a rock or a part of the structure of the tunnel fell from inside. This is evidence of poltergeist activity. At this point, everyone in the group was acting a little odd, and there was a strong sense of fear. I was actually quite frightened, which is not common for me. Seconds after the bang noise came from inside the tunnel, 
an apparition as plain as day appeared that all four of us can confirm. I'm wondering if it will show up on film. It was ice blue and fog-like and hovered for approximately 10 to 15 seconds at the entrance of the tunnel. It was shifting in form and was amorphous. But I could make out several shapes at once. A face, a body, demonic, wolf-like, human, all at the same time. Later, we discussed this and everyone sort of interpreted the apparition differently. There was no doubt, though, that we all saw it. At this point, the fear was overwhelming. We were not prepared to go inside the tunnel because of whatever was guarding the entrance. Two members of our group are returning there tonight with more equipment to record and measure the activity there. As far as I'm concerned, this area is the single most haunted spot in Niagara. I'm still debating whether or not I want to return to investigate the graveyard section and the inside of the tunnel itself. I'm thinking that it might be safer by daylight. It was obvious that whatever was guarding the tunnel was not about to permit us entrance without consequence. I am wondering if I can persuade it by bringing flowers for the headstones or asking it to grant us access. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this, but last night we were ill-prepared for what actually happened. I wasn't expecting much at all, and really, it was way crazier than what I thought was going to be happening. I'm going to be prepared next time. Remember, this is written after Russ indicated nothing spectacular happened, and he believed it was not even haunted. Here is Russ's second journal entry on his website. Yes, this place is very crazy. To be honest, I was not expecting nor were we prepared for anything like this. Whatever manifested itself was not letting us through the tunnel at all. It would have been suicide to get any closer. We are returning in two weeks. I have to prepare. Does anyone have any spells that we can use as protection? Additionally, I need a way to ensure that it does not follow us home after. When we get the pictures developed, I will post them. But there are still many snaps left on the roll of film. We are going back there with a ton of equipment to take video, EVP recordings, temperature readings, etc., etc. The whole expedition will be documented. Russ continued to write on his internet journal, each time increasing the amount of activity and the tension. He also continued to visit haunted locations across the region, but his main focus remained the tunnel, which in his next visit, he would actually call the Blue Ghost Tunnel. According to Russ, the blue fog-like apparition he had witnessed previously danced at the front entrance and appeared to him as a beautiful young female who later revealed herself as a soft-spoken seductress named September. The apparition was only seen by Russ, and others in his group say that they did not witness any apparition named September at all. In the tunnel, one of the members, who wishes to remain anonymous, recalls finding a picture of a girl. The photograph was old, he recounts, and the image was that of a girl perhaps 16 years of age. On his visit, Russ made contact with the spirit of the little girl, who he described as pretty, and he provided photographic evidence of this encounter by posting several images of the inside of the tunnel. Within the images, 
He saw, quote, a beautiful girl, quote, a demonic devil-like thing, and, quote, a dog. When the photos were shared online, others pointed out angels, cats, winged beasts, severed hands, and railway wheels. In reality, the photographs in question show nothing more than Russ's own breath expelled while the snapshot was taken in the cold, moist atmosphere of the tunnel. Inside the swirl and misty objects became defined through a psychological phenomenon known as perdolia. Russ captured no ghosts on film, but he did capture the imagination of others. As a result of posting his online journal and switching his entire focus to the tunnel, the tunnel's name stuck, the Blue Ghost Tunnel, and for short, the BGT. Several other groups quickly became interested in the newly discovered hotspot. Russ continued to visit the tunnel and became obsessed with it. Several of his friends were alienated by his ambition and now insist that a lot of the events that took place with Russ were manufactured within his own mind. Quote, It's hard to believe that what he was seeing and experiencing, says his friend Dave. I didn't witness some of the things he claims. Some weird stuff did happen. But a lot of it was just Russ, says Laura. But these friends were not active online at this time, and they did not protest the statements made by Russ. Many of them abandoned Russ's old group and parted company with him. Russ continued to add to the story and weaved a tale that he openly said would lead to a book deal or even a movie deal because, quote, it is so intense and scary. In one journal entry, he said that he communicated with the spirits of the tunnel and learned that one, the dancing blue misty female, was named September. He learned she was 19 years old and was murdered at the tunnel. Russ developed a whole persona for September, which he communicated on a witch board that he made himself. As Russ continued to expand the experience for the online crowd, others joined in as they learned about the tunnel's existence and the extreme haunting. Groups like Hamilton Paranormal and Amateur Spirit Seekers visited and posted their experiences, which included several parallel experiences to Russ. Russ posted a weekly update, and then turned it into a daily event because the ghost known as September had, according to Russ, stalked him and followed him home. It was all coming to a grand climax, however. Russ tried to gain the interest of publishers with no luck. Hollywood was not calling either. Russ was lost, and like the tunnel itself, abandoned, save for the online crowd of paranormal thrill-seekers, and he needed an out. His personal life was being affected as friends abandoned him due to his abnormal behavior, and he came up with an exit strategy. September had seduced him, he stated, and was most likely, according to Russ, a demonic spirit. This spirit had not only seduced him, but then proceeded to physically rape him, according to his journal. Violated and wanting to end this multi-dimensional relationship, he took the witch board that first made contact with September and burned it. Suddenly, Russ was offline. There were no more updates on his website, and his journal ended in June of 2002. 
In a short three months, he transformed a seemingly lost tunnel into North America's must-go-to haunted tourist attraction. Rumors quickly spread that he ran away as far as Florida to get away from the demonic sexual harassment he found at the tunnel. But Rust re-emerged briefly in October of 2002 to say he was in Florida with family. That same year, he deleted his website and removed his online journal, never returning to the paranormal community again. One has to question this entire affair, from Rust being totally engaged with the paranormal to abandoning it altogether. Was his ambition of securing a book deal and a movie deal his primary goal? Was his only motive to gain publicity and popularity? In 2009, I caught up with Russ and questioned him about the tunnel and his experiences with it. He remained silent and did not respond. In 2010, I again contacted him directly and questioned him and referenced my research into the tunnel and the possibility of a book being published about the tunnel. Russ refused to cooperate and to this day refuses to talk about the tunnel. He wishes to remain anonymous known only as Russ, the one who discovered the Blue Ghost Tunnel, the single most influential spark to this legend. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you or someone you know will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.